Good morning. We're going to uh, start off the preaching series on Habakkuk. Habakkuk, Habakkuk. We're going to stick with one. We're going to stick with Habakkuk because it's the way Americans say it, but <laughs> we don't know. We don't know probably how it's uh, originally meant to be pronounced. I've called this Trusting God in Troubled Times. We live in troubled times. And we see that very clearly in these last few weeks, don't we? Um, But we live in troubled times all the time in our personal lives, or intermittently at least in our personal lives. Um, Habakkuk is going to, I think, give us an opportunity during Lent to really ask some of the questions that we need to ask as we anticipate, as we prepare for celebrating the coming of our Lord back from the dead at Easter. So we're going to start off by a little imaginary exercise. I want you to imagine a nation marked by interpersonal conflict, by discord and strife. A nation where the strong are able to take advantage of the weak, where the wicked prosper and the righteous commonly suffer. Imagine this nation where justice is often perverted and there is violence, where there's oppression, where God's law is ignored And there's corruption in the church where leaders of the church pursue selfish gain and abuse their positions of power and they fraudulently represent God. Now maybe you have a particular place, a particular nation in mind, a particular time. Well, right now I'm thinking of Judah in 605 BC because Judah, as a theocracy, looked just like that. Now, the king was supposed to be God's representative to the people. He was supposed to promote the public good and enable proper worship of Yahweh, the Lord. He was supposed to sustain justice according to the law of God. Yet Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, was anything but righteous in his leadership. Of all Judah's evil kings, only Jehoiakim killed a prophet of the Lord, a named prophet of the Lord. Manasseh, years earlier, 50 years earlier or so, had shed much innocent blood in Judah. But Jeremiah 26 reports that Jehoiakim hunted down and killed Uriah, son of Shemaiah, a prophet of the Lord, because his message displeased the king. Uriah was a contemporary of Jeremiah and of Habakkuk. This is the Judah of the prophet Habakkuk. Now in this situation, what is the role of the prophet? Well, the prophet is to call people to return to right relationship to God. And that's what most prophets do, according to the Bible. But Habakkuk is a bit unique here because 
In this book that bears his name, he never actually speaks to the people of Judah. Instead, he describes his own confrontation with God over evil and injustice in the land. And though it's essentially a private conversation with God, you'll see that this vision from God is clearly meant for public consumption, for reading, for worship, and for the benefit of all God's people. Thus, in recording the vision of God for God's people, Habakkuk does fulfill that prophetic purpose of calling people to right relationship. Today, we're going to start with chapter 1 which includes Habakkuk's first complaint, then God's first reply, then Habakkuk's second complaint. And then we're going to sneak into chapter 2, verse 1, to finish it. Let's begin with verses 2 through 4. Habakkuk, the prophet, cries out, How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Habakkuk sees everything going wrong in his nation and his city. He's been crying out to God about the violence and injustice, about the neglect of God's law and corrupt leadership. And his complaint can be boiled down into two questions. How long and why? These questions imply many days, months, maybe years of diligent prayer over the brokenness of the people in the land. He's distraught, and God has been silent. How long must I wait for your answer to my cries for help? How long will you put up with injustice and idolatry and perversion of your law? Why do you tolerate evil and destruction and violence? Why won't you answer my prayer to restore justice and righteousness? Why are you idle, God, in this time of trouble? Why won't you set things right? His questions center on unanswered prayer. He wants God to answer and to act. These are bold, honest, and direct questions. But they are also faith-filled questions. Because when you ask this sort of question, you have to turn toward God. The prayers are full of pain and disappointment, but they're also full of faith and hope that the only one who can help will help. But I have a question about the questions. And the question is this. Should Christians question God like this? I think for some, it's part of the unspoken tradition of the church 
that we don't question God. Sarah tells me that growing up in her church, they never really lamented. They never really dwelt on the Psalms of sorrow and or the prophetic passages where God is challenged and questioned. Asking or encouraging questions like that might be considered disrespectful, disrespectful to God. It might be thought to induce doubt amongst the faithful. You know, some of us would never openly question our fathers for fear of being seen as disrespectful. That attitude often stems from a fear of stirring up a father's anger. Or it may come from a deeply reverent view of God that says, who am I to question God? That's not all bad. Yet few have trusted God more than King David, who wrote psalm after psalm like the one we heard this morning, pleading with God for justice, questioning why he does not act, or how long it will be until he receives an answer or deliverance. We see this kind of prayer all through the scriptures, but especially in the Psalms and the prophets. In truth, God welcomes honest and direct prayers and questions offered in faith. I want you to see that for Habakkuk and for David and for others, to ask in prayer how long or why is actually a confession of faith. The whole premise of questioning God this way affirms that God is personal and loving. And God hears us. He's near to us. To question God in faith like this expresses trust in his goodness and his faithfulness. That is the will of God, that we would express trust in his goodness and his faithfulness. And so questioning can actually be the will of God, can be doing the will of God. Now, of course, attitude matters. It's possible to question God in a faithless manner, just as much as it is to question God in a faithful manner. So even in our anguish and in in anger, we can ask in a posture of dependence and in a posture of humility. Rather than asking why things aren't the way I want, We can ask why things aren't the way you want, God. And I believe that's why Habakkuk made his complaint and why, or that's how Habakkuk made his complaint and why he is not rebuked by the Lord for his boldness. Join me as I read verses five and six, which begins God's first reply. Look at the nations and watch And be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings, not their own. Indeed, the Lord does not dispute Habakkuk's analysis of the problem. In fact, he sees the depravity of his people more clearly than the prophet. Judgment will be swift and shocking. 
something Habakkuk can't possibly understand or believe. He will soon raise up the Babylonians to bring judgment on Judah. Just as he did with the northern kingdom of Israel 120 years prior, God will use a foreign nation, a despised and lawless and unclean people to judge his precious possession. Now, God is fully aware of the wickedness and the ruthless character of these people. In fact, it shocks and distresses the prophet. God's blunt inventory of their motives and methods. In all this, God implicitly declares that he orchestrates the rise and fall of kingdoms for his purposes. And that the chosen people of the promised land are not exempt from judgment, perhaps even destruction. According to Robertson, the commentator who I've relied on heavily here, most incredible is the fact that God's own people could be cast off and at the hands of Gentiles more wicked than themselves. The prophet Habakkuk had prayed, hoping for some form of purging of the evil in the land of Judah. But the divine response speaks of such an utter devastation that even greater distress grips the mind of the prophet. God's ways are far beyond our capacity to understand them. Habakkuk, who's been crying out for God to answer him, now receives an answer. And it's a wonderful and an awful grace that he gets an answer. Because he can't accept it. And it only multiplies his distress. In this case, as in others, God's answer is both unexpected and unwelcome. Even terrifying. How many times have you said, I just need to know what God is doing? Or it would be so much easier for me if I understood his plan. Can you see in this example how that's not true? Not always true, at least. What do we do when we get an answer from God we don't like, or we're shaken by God's actions? And his plans. Well, this is what Habakkuk does. We'll go to verse 12 and 13. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Are you not from everlasting? Why do you tolerate evil? You permit the strong to crush the weak as if there's no ruler, no justice. Will the wicked be permitted to continue destroying the weak? Is there no end to the injustice? You see, he responds with more probing. 
and more challenging of God, this time because the answer doesn't conform to his hope, his expectation, or what he knows or expects of God. All that he knows tells him that the Holy One of Israel must set things right. So he's truly bewildered by the use of this evil and pure nation. But still, this second complaint is from faith, not doubt. It's not a weak faith, it's a perplexed faith. He doesn't like the answer. The vision showed him something about God's ways that shook him. And now he's pushing back at God about the plan, about this revelation, about this answer that wrecks him. Have you ever felt that way? It seems to me that all of us have pushed back at God from time to time. In times of pain or injustice, times of vulnerability or fear. In those times, only one thing keeps us from disintegrating or fleeing, and that is the covenant love of God. In verse 12, Habakkuk addresses the Lord, saying, My God, my Holy One, and later, my Rock. Covenant love is the basis for resilient relationship. This language is personal and covenantal. It speaks of possession and of belonging. Habakkuk trusts that he belongs to God on the basis of God's covenant love. God has said, you will be my people and I will be your God. That's the basis for relationship of God and the people of Israel, and it's the basis for relationship of us with God. God established a relationship of faithfulness and intimacy like a marriage. And Habakkuk holds on to God because God is holding on to Habakkuk in his covenant love. So that's Habakkuk's second complaint. Now how will he wait for God's answer? On chapter 2, verse 1, we read that Habakkuk will stand watch like a lookout, diligent and attentive. And he will wait to see how God will answer him. Even though he's been wrecked by what's happened, he turns again attentively to God with humility and with hope. Only revelation from God will be sufficient for him. Nothing else can deliver the prophet from his despair. And truly, nothing else can deliver us from our despair. God has revealed himself and his answers in many ways. The scriptures, both old and new, by the power of the Holy Spirit, speak to us of God's ways. But the greatest answer to our despair over sin and violence and injustice is given in the person and life of Jesus the Messiah. 
In Jesus, God meets us in our pain. He meets us in our anger, our weakness, and our suffering. When we cry out, How long, O Lord? Or why do you not act? Our attention should be directed to Jesus Christ. God's single greatest act and answer. Because in Jesus, God's mercy meets his justice. And all wrongs are righted. But do you remember what happened when Jesus explained to his disciples how all things would be made right? Time and time again, he told them that the Son of Man must suffer at the hands of evil men and be killed. And the disciples didn't like that answer. They don't want that plan. So they object to his plans and they actively try to dissuade him. And they try to block him from going to Jerusalem. But Jesus was following the strange and unexpected path set for him by the Father. Once again, God used evil men to accomplish his purposes. When the son is unjustly beaten, crucified, and killed, the unrighteous appear to triumph over those more righteous than them. The disciples, like Habakkuk, were horrified and bewildered. Yet God's purpose in judging sin and delivering mercy was perfectly served. So in Christ Jesus, mercy and justice meet. All wrongs will be made right, either by grace or by retribution. All who sin will be justly dealt with. Some by grace are forgiven for the sake of Jesus Christ and receive eternal life. And others, by vengeance and judgment, shall receive the just punishment for sin. Habakkuk didn't know that much about God's plan for justice. But he knew that the Lord was good and that the Lord loved justice. He was in some ways like Peter, who when many were turning away from Jesus in times of trouble said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. My friends, faith in God is nothing more than confidence in God. So many Christians claim to believe in God, yet they have no real confidence in him. In his time of trouble, Habakkuk turned toward God with confidence. He turned toward God with his sorrow, with his questions. He didn't turn away. He endured long periods of silence. He endured his own distress and anxiety. Yet he continued to cry out in desperation to the only one who could answer him. His answer shocked. God's answer shocked and disappointed him. And he turned again to to God, towards God, pleading for justice and mercy and trusting in the covenant love of the Lord. And then again, he waited and he watched. May we today, in our times of trouble, have the same confidence in God who has revealed himself even more fully in Jesus now 
May we have confidence to ask honest questions and faith and to wait and to trust God to finally bring both mercy and judgment. Let's pray. Oh, our Father in heaven, only you bring an answer that can deliver us. We look to you. We watch and we wait. Because only you can deliver justice and mercy. Thank you, God, for the revelation in Jesus Christ of your plan for mercy for us. God, we eagerly await Jesus' second appearance when all things will be made right. Where the pain of war and struggle and strife and violence and injustice will be set right forever. Amen.